This show is part of the RetroZap.com podcast network. You will never find the more wretched hive of scum and villainy. We must be cautious. Hello, and welcome to Beltway Banthas, a Star Wars podcast live from the hive of scum and villainy in our very own galaxy, Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Stephen Kent. I'm your host, Swarasala. And today is episode 63 of Beltway Banthas, Powerful Light, Powerful Dark. It is a day after the 2008 midterm elections. Politics and emotions are charged in America, and Swara and I are here to talk about that. And more importantly, for the context of this podcast, Star Wars and what we learn and apply from Star Wars to elections and politics and changes of power and balance in our own political system. Swara, it's nice to be talking with you. It's been a couple of weeks. I'm in New York City tonight on business, and I imagine you're in your new humble abode in Washington, D.C.? Yes, I am. It's a very nice apartment uh, here in the district, and uh, was just at an election watch party last night, celebrating the results as they were coming in. Uh, I was with this organization I was working with. We actually knocked on a bunch of doors for a couple of weekends uh, around the Richmond area for Virginia 7 for Abigail Spanberger. And Thankfully, she won. So, uh, you know, while we were very happy at the general outcome of the Democrats taking the House, we were very particularly happy at Abigail's win as we worked so hard directly for her. So it was a great night last night. Yeah, I felt like it was a pretty good night, too. I was watching a a bunch of different races and, and ballot initiatives and amendments that were going, uh, you know, before voters this year. And I felt overall like it was an encouraging night for American politics. I was sad that Steve King survived his midterm election. That was particularly uh, frustrating given what's been going on with him. But, you know, I got to say, what a mixed bag. Were you going into this, Suara, expecting the blue wave? Because I, I have staked out my claim long ago that there was not going to be a wave. It was going to be like a splash. And I I feel kind of indicated in that. I feel like there was a wave, not as large as I would have wanted it to be. There was, we faced a very tough Senate map. I didn't expect for us to get back the Senate, honestly. And Beto's loss, while very sad for us Democrats, honestly, not that unexpected. Uh, You know, I feel like it was still significant in the number of seats that we gained. They're still counting right now. We've gained at least 20 or so. And uh, I think that we made significant gains in state legislators and in governor's races, such as in Illinois. Uh, So, you know, I, I guess like, you know, when we describe the when we think of the blue wave as though, oh, it's this absolute 100 uh, percent rebook of Trump. And you're right. It wasn't really that. But I still felt as though we made significant gains that do send a message that we're not going to tolerate what this president is doing. So 
for me, and I feel like for a lot of Democrats, that was pretty much enough. Yeah, I I was expecting obviously the Democrats to take the House and for the GOP to you know tighten its grip on the Senate, which it did, which has huge implications for the White House, the judiciary, which will be important to the White House because the Democrats have the House and the ability to subpoena and sort of open up investigations against the president. And I got to say, I was really happy to see Beto O'Rourke lose. I really don't like that guy. Like Ted, Ted Cruz is one of the most unlikable Republican politicians or politicians perhaps in general in the country. And somehow I just disliked that person more. And I think it was the skateboard and the YMCA people. I think that just did it for me. But I was a little bit more on the fence. And I, I tried not to take a too strong of an opinion on the Florida governor's race between Gillum and DeSantis because DeSantis I found pretty objectionable, but Gillum, the nationalization of that race and sort of having it be focused on national politics instead of Florida kind of made me sour on both of those individuals and the fact that Gillum is tied up in all of these sort of FBI corruption problems. And then the race was just highly racialized when it was really, I think, about a guy who has some corruption problems and then another guy who's a racist kind of Trumpian dude. And and we're supposed to sort of support Gillum by default. And I, I didn't like that uh, about that race. And so I was kind of relieved to see him go down, but you know, not exactly for DeSantis because I, I find him to be sort of like Kobach, uh, which I'm you know also relieved that he went down. Uh, but you know different different states, different strokes, I guess. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, so kind of pivoting over to Star Wars because there is a a Star Wars tie-in that I was thinking about in relation to the midterms, which was you know, we, we've had, I guess, a couple of years of uh, unprecedented, not unprecedented, but it's been a while since the Republicans have had this much power in Washington and around the country between legislatures um, and governor's mansions. And Democrats have been rightly discouraged. Swar, I, I feel like that's that's pretty accurate to say. Well, you know, while we've been discouraged, we've pressed forward and thankfully got significant gains like we did last night. So, Kind of a mixed bag, you know, for me, yeah, there have been discouraging signs since 2016 for sure in terms of the direction our uh, country has been going in and what this president has been up to along with uh, what Republican senators and Congress people have enabled him to do. But I don't know, I still... I've still always had like some sort of sense of hope of, uh, you know, pushing back. So... I don't know. For me personally, I feel like it's been a mixed bag. You know, you've got your high days, you got your low days and but yeah, there have been discouraging signs for sure. So are are you reluctant to say that the left has been particularly emotionally downtrodden for the past 2 years or do you think that that's isolated? I feel like it's both. I feel like we have certainly felt a huge weight on us, a sort of depressive weight uh, and a sort of stark realization of what there is to lose and what still could be lost. The gaining of the house yesterday for us symbolizes, hey, we can put some preventative measures on this president to who is going to try to carry out you know, his insane plans, whatever they are, or try to keep just general ch uh, check on him. But I think that the 2016 election 
even if you're not a Democrat, it just like really rattled and woke up people to what's at stake in our politics generally. So it's, yeah. Uh, yeah. Now, you know, and, and the, the thing that I had just been thinking about the, the blue wave and the idea that it was going to swing back was, was just so unlikely. And what I guess I wanted as a libertarian was to see this is this is weird to say because I didn't feel this way uh, in previous administrations when I think I was politically different. I, I've changed over the course of time, but actual gridlock in government, where you have uh, something that is going to stop Republicans in Congress and in the White House from just kind of doing whatever they want to do. That there's actually going to be. Um, some barriers where just things can't happen. And if you're a libertarian, government that can't really do anything is probably government that is uh, better, even if it makes people anxious as voters. But the point of this, because I mentioned Star Wars, my apologies, was uh, there's a chapter in my book that I'm working on about the politics of Star Wars. Uh, It's called Powerful Light, Powerful Dark. And it kind of goes back to a line delivered by Luke to Rey in The Last Jedi. Uh, Last night, there was a lot of hype about the blue wave. Like, And again, I I never really kind of bought into that. It was a mixed bag, but it reminded me that there in the force and in Star Wars, there is this push and pull between the light and the dark. And and literally like red lightsabers versus versus blue lightsabers, you know, there's there's this eternal struggle, the war between the Jedi and the Sith. And it's all against all. It's a battle of total domination. And Luke seems to sort of call out an old way of thinking in Star Wars, a uh, sort of false narrative that the Jedi would push that they were seeking balance in the force. They paid lip service to the idea of balance. And I, I think that, that it's really interesting that Star Wars acknowledged that evil uh, darkness has to exist for light to exist, that they have to both be there, and sort of called foul on the Jedi of the past from basically wanting to just override the other completely. Um, do, do you think about that much? Because it, it, it seems to be one of the, the most graying areas of Star Wars sort of moral compass and philosophy. And it's, it's one of my favorite changes that Star Wars has made in the past couple of years. Yeah, it's one of my favorite too. I love that line in The Last Jedi. I love that theme that's explored in The Last Jedi, particularly in the relationship between Rey and Kylo, in which uh, you know they serve as the representations of light and dark, respectively, and they understand more of what they have in common and how to reach that common ground. We had this episode with our friends, the Sky Talkers, on Rey and Kylo's political force discourse. And yeah, yeah, that was a good one. Yeah, Luke's line and his whole demeanor in the Last Jedi was about him realizing that this is a cyclical battle that doesn't have any real end in sight. Like it's just going to be the same thing over and over again. He defeated Darth Vader and the Emperor. He redeemed Darth Vader, nonetheless, no, uh, for you know good measure. But it still happened again. His very own nephew was lost to the dark side. Another evil force rose in the form of Snoke to try to rule the galaxy. And 
you know, it kind of goes back to what J.J. Abrams said and others have said uh, in, who work on the sequel trilogy about how, hey, this is a uh, theme in our politics and in the galaxy far, far away. Fascism is always going to rise and we always have to be vigilant to defeat it. So, Lou. And, yeah, I think like the problem mm-hmm. with this analogy analogy is like ascribing who is who is light and who is dark. You know, particularly in American politics, you know, nobody wants to in this analogy like that's kind of what makes it hard to talk about is mm-hmm. you know, we're talking about two political parties which have, you know, historically been legitimate political parties and it's hard to say one is light or dark and I don't want to do that in mm-hmm. this conversation at mm-hmm. all. Um, but just sort of have them as proxies for, you know, being opposites, right? Right. Like, like, yeah, you know, one is, one is black, one is white, et cetera. Yeah. And Luke realizes that, you know, with it happening again and again, and this is something Mark Hamill said specifically in his conception of Luke's character in The Last Jedi. He imagined Luke as, oh, once being a carefree hippie who thought that he was going to change, they were going to change the world, that there would be no more war. And, he, Mark Hamill essentially took his experiences, you know, being a liberal his entire life and seeing the state of the world as it is today and being depressed and despondent about that. And he applied that to Luke in The Last Jedi, who was hopeful at the end of Return of the Jedi that everything would be okay. That, But, you know, like, again, Snoke uh, lured his own nephew away and turned to the dark side and this evil force, the first order was lurking the shadows for like 30 years or so. And they had the new Republic and Luke hadn't done anything about it. And it was the same cycle all over again. So, you know, like that, that is really Luke's uh, conception of like, you know, this entire galactic battle. He almost sees the force as like, I'm actually taking a page from Knights of the Old Republic 2, if anyone's ever played that uh, Legends game. It's really fantastic. Uh, In which one of the characters says that the force treats us like play things, that we're used as uh, toys for some sort of game of balance that has really no end. And I think Luke takes some of that sort of cynicism and says, what's the point if we're going to continue the cycle all over again? It's interesting to think about. It's depressing to think about, really. But yeah, I mean, we go there. through that. Yeah, in American politics. yeah I mean, it, it, the the just the swing so hard back and forth between Republican and Democratic rule is exasperating. It's probably one of the things that makes the American experiment particularly in this age of increased polarization and entrenchment um, of partisan affiliations and voting patterns so, so hard to deal with because when you lose an election, I mean, you're really losing the country and the course of what the vision of the country is in a way that I don't think was true uh, just in previous decades uh, in a period of relative calm and closer party alignment. That makes that makes the the politics and the the war seem like it is sort of a war for survival. You know, you don't if you think of like the Jedi and Sith as political parties, they're in pursuit of total domination of the other. The Jedi pay lip service to the balance of the Force. They say that they want balance, but it really means you know they want the other side gone. Politicians will likely not 
tell you they favor a one-party system. They'll tell you, you know, the Republican Party is is part of you know a certain strain of thought in America. The Democratic Party are important to the process, but they don't govern that way at all. They don't govern like the other side is important to the process. You've seen a, a huge explosion in single-party voting, voting straight ticket in Congress um, just in the past couple of years. And that's become the norm. And it really does seem like these two factions are not trying to share space or acknowledging the legitimacy of the other anymore. Each of them feels as though they're the ones who are paving the path forward to progress in whichever way they want to, whether that's being more conservative and relatively um, slower paced or more liberal and faster paced and wanting government to do more for every citizen. It's really the conception that this side is not even just stuck in the past, just has the wrong view of how we should proceed forward. And we are the side that knows based on, you know, data on history, on our own conception of our nation generally, what is the path forward? And I will admit, you know, for me as a Democrat liberal, that's the way I see it for my side. I will fully admit that and feel free. Obviously, you should feel free to disagree with that. But I do understand that, like, for a lot of people on the other side, they also think that they're the hero of that journey. So I... The hero's journey really is at the, the heart of right, all of right. it. You know, <laughs> there's there's no there's nobody who thinks of themselves as Darth Vader. Oh, yeah. Everybody thinks they're Luke Skywalker. Absolutely, and this is why we have a democracy to convince to have people decide which one of our visions is right, which one of uh, us like should be the path to move forward on. You know, it's really interesting. I want to just reference another podcast. Uh, who talks first and one of their main hosts, Courtney, uh, who's really fantastic, by the way, you know, she like, uh, says that the real key to forward progress is winning those hearts and minds, like both in, uh, our own, uh, country and in star Wars that, for example, the first order will be defeated when they understand the folly of their ways. And, Courtney and uh, her host, yeah. uh, C- yeah. uh, Solar, are also huge advocates of Kylo Ren's redemption. You know, a lot of people are uh, today after The Last Jedi. So they don't want that evil to be defeated by, you know, simply squashing them away, but again, by winning that heart and mind. So I think that this is a theme that we see across, you know, honestly, across Star Wars and our own ga- uh, country. I almost said our own galaxy, but that's uh, true. It is our own galaxy. Uh, it is about winning that moral argument because I think Star Wars from Return of the Jedi onward, that has it has always conveyed that that is the biggest victory of all to win those hearts and minds. And that's actually another uh, reference to Knights of the Old Republic too. Like if you remember Kreia, she says that, that this is what I crave most to convince people that I am right. And it's so much more satisfying than simply yeah. striking your enemy down. Oh, that's, that's really interesting. I'm so glad you mentioned that. I don't honestly remember that part, but that seems like something that Kreia would say. And 
you know, just in this this conference that I'm at in New York City, it's a it's a libertarian international conference where organizations and grassroots leaders come from all around the world, some of them from totalitarian countries, places where they are technically political dissidents and maybe snuck out of the country to even be here, um, speak about not cudgeling and attacking the other side because you can't just make them go away. The whole idea that you can make people be silent or go away is is how you live in an unfree society. You have to try to find a way to agree on a shared vision or or discover that you already have a shared vision. You're just using different language to describe what it is and different means to get there. And that is inspiring to me coming from party politics uh, in a Republican party that I think has just sort of become more all against all over the course of time and a youth movement kind of guided by the own libs mentality where it's really just about winning domination and injury, uh, insult to injury sometimes, uh, rather than sort of recognizing that everybody wants to make the world a better place. Now, in in Star Wars, it's a little bit different. We are talking about uh, evil versus good. Well, Palpatine might not agree, but you can objectively say that the dark side regimes in Star Wars have not been good for um, you know, human flourishing and, and prosperity, right? I mean, I think that's fair. But sorry, at the same time, and I think that you'll remember this, you know, reading a bunch of like legends novels set in the prequel era. I remember this uh, particularly from reading the Revenge of the Sith novelization. Palpatine, he was convinced that he was the only one who could make things right, that he was essentially the chosen one for the galaxy to... Um, bring order, bring security, and it was warped. It was wrong for sure, but he still had that conviction. And I think a lot of Sith did as well. You know, when we look at the rule of uh, two, uh, you know, one to to embody power and the other to crave it, and then you look at the Sith code about how you know power will give you victory, which will give you freedom, etc. This philosophy they have is very, I know, it's very self-driven. It's very um, understanding of the fact that, like, you know, when we utilize our own power, that we can create great things in this universe and potentially set an example for others to follow. Like, again, we know what's wrong. Everything that Star Wars has taught us, you know, in the uh, galactic stories of the galaxy has shown us that the Sith are wrong. They're the evil ones, but they were still a lot of them were still so uh, convinced that they were right. And, you know, you could say that for like, like we said earlier, everyone is the hero of their own journey. Mm. It's hard to it's hard to think about Palpatine as having a positive vision for the galaxy because we see what he talks about and discusses in private, you know, with his with his admirals and Darth Vader. And it's it's just so deeply sinister and he doesn't care about, you know, individual life. He cares, I think, more about broad control. And I, I guess he's not interested in being the emperor of a galaxy of no one. I, I don't think that he finds purpose or meaning in that. Um, 
but you have to, I guess, take him seriously. And the reasons why people wanted Empire in the first place, which was that the Clone Wars were incredibly awful. And the Clone Wars were result of a republic and a democratic system gone wrong. There's you know plenty of reason. Uh, the, the body count was massive. I mean, we're talking about millions, if not billions of people across the galaxy killed in a conflict, and they just wanted it to stop, right? And Palpatine wanted it to stop too, but you can't say that he cared for the body count or the loss of life. I think he just wanted power for him in this situation. So, you know, we talked a bit about the Jedi and the Sith, but what do the average galactic citizens think about all this? You know, people who are caught in the middle. What are your thoughts on this? Oh, oh, that's fascinating. I, you know, uh, (laughs) there was an article in the Atlantic this past week uh, about a broad American exhaustion with PC culture. I believe you saw this, right? Uh, yeah, I did see. I saw the headlines from it. Yeah, it, it was it was really really interesting. You know that you know exhaustion with PC culture is not a black white thing. Um, it's actually very prevalent among minorities of low income and and less education because it it just makes them feel exhausted and that they can't keep up with a changing culture. And they sort of term uh, put, a, put a term for this, it's the exhausted majority of Americans who are not entrenched in the deep sides of the ideological conflict, which is being waged by rich, highly educated partisans on each side. And when I think about the individuals of the galaxy, I think about them as the exhausted majority, but they're also the majority that is getting like killed in these conflicts. And that's really unfortunate because we're talking about a galaxy with Death Stars and, and with you know massive weapons where we just sort of see people get killed willy-nilly in Star Wars and don't really think about how that would be like to live in it. And it's funny because The Last Jedi actually seems to touch on that a little bit with the presence of the caretakers. And I'd love to actually do just like an entire episode on this one week because, you know, the, the, the way the caretakers are frustrated with Rey and her presence on the island, I guess they've learned to live with Luke and his stewardship of the island. But Rey like brings in chaos, like this outside energy that disrupts things, knocks down buildings, you know, destroys their, their little wagon of cabbage, <laughs> my cabbages. And it, it's, it's incredibly frustrating for them. They don't like her. And that's kind of how I feel in a microcosm, how the rest of the galaxy feels about this conflict, that it's not for them. It's about other people's power and sense of self-righteousness. Yeah, that is really fascinating. And the caretakers, yeah, you know, when Ray comes to the island, you know, they're just, uh, you know, minding their own business while Luke is there as well. And yeah, you know, and it's funny because like they're at the sort of center of trying to protect this a sacred force um, a place, a sanctuary. But they're also, again, just like you say, like the ones who are just uh, going about their daily lives, just simply cleaning and trying to maintain uh, the infrastructure of what both the Sith and Jedi have basically ravaged for centuries. And it's yeah you know like uh, the average galactic denizens they you know again like 
I wish we would get more of this in Star Wars, like people going about their daily lives, not really. I mean, they care about what's going on between the Sith and Jedi Empire and rebels, etc. But we don't see enough of like people who don't have the ability to take arms to rebellion or to join the empire people who, besides bounty hunters, people who are really just, um, fundamentally trying to go about their lives and like, I don't know. Like it's like who ha- who try to stay outside of what's going on, but still need to be involved as well. And I feel like that's how it is for so many Americans as well. The crazy politics of our day today are beyond insane, you know, like since 2016 and even a little before that, but we're still engaged. We're still involved because this is necessary. This is crucial for our everyday lives, but the way, you know, the media may cover it, the way people uh, across the political aisle may act, it's just so exhausting. It's so exhausting to keep uh, up with, but again, it's something necessary for us. So, to have like a some sort to have some sort of story, even in our own world. Well, I guess like New York Times just does a lot of uh, think uh, reports on that, and like other yeah. outlets do as well. But to have something like that in Star Wars, I think would be really cool. Yeah, I mean, I, I really believe Star Wars is trying to signal to us a a and the importance of of competing viewpoints, and that there's a certain amount of legitimacy and engagement that you have to do with opposing philosophies, and that there's something to be to be seen in everything. You know that the dark can support the light, and that you know the blue the blue idea can make the red idea better. The red idea can make the blue idea better. It, it fuels and empowers everything and gives things life. Um, it's a circle, right? And I, I really believe that our political system could benefit from a, a return to that kind of thinking. Um, you know, the problem is that everybody should want to win. You know, the, the parties should see their philosophy as better. Otherwise, they shouldn't be in it. They should want to win. But even in governance, we have this increasing problem that I, I alluded to earlier about the trend in like party line voting. You know, you have the recent tax reform bill is sort of exhibit A with this, with zero Democrats voting for it in either the House or the Senate. One Republican uh, defected in the Senate and a few in the House. But, you know, in general, party line voting and the way that people are governing in Washington is a reflection of this side that we're, you know, that we're sitting next to in Congress. They don't have anything worthy to bring to the table. This only would happen 60% of the time in 1960. And today it's 92% of the time when a bill goes through, it's like a party line effort. You know, it happened under George W. Bush. There was relative unity around No Child Left Behind, like relative unity. But then he switched it up and went to war with the Democrats on prescription drugs for seniors. And we all know how the Affordable Care Act went down with all, you know, Democratic votes, no Republican votes. But that was by the Republicans' own volition, right? Like Mitch McConnell made that the strategy to not cooperate and give victories. So, you know, it, it just seems like it escalates and escalates and escalates to the point where nobody sees the other party as having a place at the table. Like in North Carolina, they're doing this and trying to institutionalize it. I don't know how much you follow that. Um, but, you know, the Republican majorities in North Carolina are just trying to write the Democrats out of government. Oh, yeah, entirely. I have been following it, that a bit. It's been absolutely horrible. And 
Uh, I just, yeah, I, I do like, it's like on, sorry. It's vengeance. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It feels that way. It's like on I principle, I do want bipartisanship, but at the same time, to be honest, I feel like it's dead. And I feel like, and I will say, you know, from my bias as a Democrat, I think that's due more to one side, but I can acknowledge as well how we may have contributed to that as well. It's just, while we do want to be bipartisan, it's like we know that if we let space, if we let a leg up, then they're going to take more advantage of us. And we're, we've seen it in North Carolina. We've seen it in other states. We've seen it in gerrymandered districts, some of which have been thankfully been struck down, such as in Pennsylvania. And it's like we want to extend that olive branch of trust, but now everything is so tense. Everything is so... And, and, and if I could pose like a question to you that, that I have, you know, the, one of the, the themes in Star Wars, The Last Jedi, and maybe Star Wars in general, is the recognition of darkness as well and when and when not to confront it. Luke... Luke wrestles with this in The Last Jedi, you know, where he doesn't want to continue the cycle of warfare between the Sith and the Jedi, so he secludes himself and cuts him off from the Force. But somewhere along the story, he changes his mind and decides that he does have to engage and fight back against what he considers to be wrong and something that needs to be stopped. He gives his life for it, but he also doesn't fight Kylo. So... I don't want to be overdramatic, but there is evil embedded in some American public policy and attitudes. But the problem is that it's it's you know it's banality. It's it's evil that it's hard to recognize because it's normalized. And if we sort of drive towards this, oh well, there should be more bipartisanship, more consensus. But but what if? But, if the other side's wrong, then how do you then then say like, well, you know, then they should have a seat at the table and we should work with them if you really believe that what they're doing is going to hurt people, right? That's that's the Star Wars essential conflict is, is do you fight the dark or do you – the other side or do you try to make room and, and pursue coexistence? It's It's impossible. <laughs> It's impossible because there are so many corrupt forces at play, often from the outside. And I think this is where dark money comes into play. When you have all of these special interests, when you have all of these lobbying organizations, in particular, one I very much dislike is the oil and gas industry and how much they've poured money and poured resources into ensuring that we can't get, you know, the proper uh, renewable energies and like greenhouse gas policies we need to combat climate change. There's so much at play in that aspect that I think we need to address more and create protections against so we can have an actual real debate about these issues and not have these special interests get involved and muddy up the process. That's part of why I feel like a lot of people and a lot of people in the system don't trust the system and don't trust like – Because it's a proxy war of billionaires. Exactly. Exactly. It's just like – Yeah. I mean, it, it, I hate for it to be this sort of war of attrition, of, of political attrition. But I feel as though, especially with this president who 
as we all know, cares nothing more about winning. You know, today when he was asked about the midterm results, he was only, only focused on the gains that Republicans made or that they held on to and (laughs) uses for like why they lost House seats or I don't know what. And it's that press conference was wild. Oh God. Oh God. It's like, (laughs) I just, it's like, again, I want to extend that olive branch, but I also know what I feel is right and what I feel still needs to be done in the first place to try to push for the policies and the sort of activism I believe in, while at the same time still also believing in the good that can come from not necessarily the politicians, but the voters. You know, like I mentioned earlier, I was canvassing in Richmond and you know, I met senior citizens who had voted Republican or independent all their life who are now starting to vote Democrat because they're so fed up with what Trump is doing and want to for, sort of enforce a check on him with this new Congress. So it's like voters are smart. Voters like know what's up. And it's like, you know, obviously that's my biased point of view, but, you know, I'll take it. And Yeah, it's like, you know, again, like uh, my friend Courtney said, it's all about winning those hearts and minds and convincing them that your way is the path of righteousness. You know, like that's the ultimate victory that we can strive for. Mm, Yeah, but it's hard to do that without being self-righteous because nobody nobody comes towards people who are self-righteous, right? Who are condemning you while trying to convince you that they're right. It, it, It really has to be trying to figure out where people are, what matters to them, and why what you are talking about speaks to those concerns that they have. And I think what we have too much of in our, I think more of our public discourse than our political discourse, though it it does exist there a little bit as well, is lecturing and talking down to people. Right. Um, Right. And And it's like with the PC culture thing, it's like, I don't want, I mean, it's like, I consider myself very, very socially liberal and it, you have to pick your battles here and there. You have to pick like when you want to talk with someone about like, Hey, I don't think like it was a really uh, good thing of you to say about this person or to use that word or whatever. But if it's like immediately in the moment and you're trying to convince someone like to see something from your side, like, I think that you're right in being that demeaning to them isn't going to really help our case. Like, you know, there's a reason hashtag why people hate liberals. So, or at least some people do, you know what I mean? It's that sort of condescending attitude. Like we can give off sometimes. And I think honestly stems from a lot of performatism, a lot of performative wokeness, which doesn't really help the liberal cause. But at the same time, I want to tell people, I want to relay my own stories of, you know, like, so like, you know, my family's Middle Eastern and like I may have Middle Eastern relatives. I may talk with them sometimes about the El- and it's like not all Middle Eastern, but like, you know, we're first generation immigrants. I t- may tell some of my family in Kurdistan or elsewhere who are also first generation about, hey, here are the LGBTQIA friends I've made. Here's why they're such great people. Here's why, you know, you sh- we shouldn't like use these terms here and there. It's like if I'm having that organic conversation with my family, my more traditionally socially conservative family, that'll like have a much more uh, positive effect going forward than me like lecturing down to them talking down to them like that 
So, actually, since you said it, could you help me with something? Uh, I, I'm not I'm not up to speed on the IA. What is the IA? Um, so A is asexual and the I intersex. Yes, I is for intersex. Fascinating. I'm behind once again. <laughs> yeah, I have a conversation well, I- with you. Yeah, this has been a, a fun conversation. One I, I've been I've been dying to have for a couple of days, but you know, yesterday just sort of I think made more clear um, the bipolar the bipolar results. Like it's it's a preview of what is to come. Like we are not trending in this country towards a resolution. The Democrats' agenda and message drove record turnout for them. Republicans' stark opposite message drove record turnout for them. And if, like, you thought this cycle was poisonous, you know, just wait. Record turnout for American voters and record polarization aside, there is still an exhausted majority between this escalating fight in American politics, a massive non-engaged block of people who don't see their values and flexible, I think flexible political natures reflected in our political parties. So on the next episode, We are going to talk about that. We're going to double down and dig deeper on the forgotten civilians of the galaxy who get steamrolled, caught up in, or killed uh, in the war between the light and the dark in Star Wars and the factions and forces that sort of embody uh, those two forces. So I think that will be a good sequel to this conversation. And it's a a little idea Suara had. And I think it's important. And I'm also glad because Star Wars Resistance is going to make that a lot easier. It seems to be a really uh, consistent theme of that show. And I've enjoyed that. I love this show so much. It's only been like four or five episodes, but it's already my favorite Star Wars animated series. Like it's if y'all aren't watching Resistance, please go watch it. It is such a fantastic show. It really is. And it's a lot of fun. But, you know, you've heard us say that a couple of times, so we won't won't beat a dead horse with it or beat a dead bantha. <laughs> so this episode of Beltway Banthas was brought to you truly by our friends and supporters on Patreon. This podcast has only become harder to manage and produce as the audience has grown and the love of Star Wars politics has expanded. The only thing I think keeping it workable is our patrons who give anywhere from $1 to $10 a month to this show, whether that just be $1 that could go towards a coffee or $10 that could go for an entire meal. It makes a huge difference for us. A vast majority of our supporters give only one, and it's really not for nothing. It adds up. Uh, It helps us cover our online hosting fees, pay for web chat software that Swar and I are using right now so that we can more clearly communicate. Uh, We recently bought new microphones with new, better sound quality, and this also covers our costs of hosting live shows and events and cons and such. So please consider becoming a patron of Beltway Banthas today by going over to www.patreon.com slash Beltway Banthas. That's patreon.com slash Beltway Banthas. A special thank you to Connie Shee, Cheston Lee, Nathan Hartwig, Isaiah Leslie, Andy Siener, Brad Tracy, Nick Dico Landria now, who I'm living in the same city as Nick in Raleigh, very cool, Sarah Smith, BJ Smith, Jessica Shitara, Jared Cantor, Tish Wells, Sarah Strain, and Sean Mahan. We thank you all so much for your support 
of this show. That brings us to our legendary and highly anticipated Bantha Fodder segments where we get to talk about something that's been on our mind uninterrupted about Star Wars politics or otherwise. Swar, why don't you kick us off? I'm, I'm curious what's on your mind. You know, we've been talking about it all episode, but it's just been the election. For the past couple of weeks, I've been knocking on like hundreds of doors, been making hundreds of phone calls for candidates. And last night, you know, I was so anxious going in, as were a lot of my friends. But uh, we came out feeling strong and feeling uplifted. We, you know, we saw historic gains, uh, you know, not just in the House, but in like state legislators and governor's races, as I mentioned earlier. And a lot of firsts, uh, we got several native women and Muslim women uh, to the House of Representatives. Uh, and one state in particular has now has an openly gay governor, uh, I think in the first in that state's history. So despite everything that's happened the past two years, there is an upswell of genuine progressive forward thinking and just genuinely people like people who just care so much about these issues we talk about, you know, it's not just PC culture. It's actually caring about people in the LGBTQIA community and in minority groups who have genuinely uplifted, you know, these particular cans I'm talking about. It's only like a handful of people, but it does signify things to come. Things can get better when we collect, when we organize, when we, again, push forward. And this doesn't have to be a partisan thing. This can just be a human thing. This can just be an, like this overall message of representation and inclusion can be something that we all strive for where we get to know our neighbors better where we get to rebuke the message the horrid messages of this administration that we need to fear the other when really we can embrace each other and we can again make victories with each other so i guess just in general i am still feeling so proud of what uh what we've done what we've accomplished and I know it's going to continue forward. And for everyone who's scared by the stepping down or the firing, really, of Jeff Sessions, you know, who was horrible in his own right, but still a uh, impediment to Trump trying to do away with the Mueller investigation. Please remember that we have still made gains that the House will be a check on the pre- this president and will potentially launch investigations into the mountain of like potential crimes he and like his uh, cronies may have committed. So I guess what I'm trying to say is in some like for, you know, my Democratic and progressive and other compatriots who care about what's going on right now, have hope. We're making progress always forward. So there's my fodder. Stephen, what's on your mind? All right. So Halloween is just right behind us now, and so is the release of the Halloween reboot of the franchise starring Jamie Lee Curtis as Laurie Strode. Michael Myers has always meant something to me, and I don't really know why. I have a a kind of obsession 
with understanding evil. Like I really wanted to, when I was you know, a teenager and kind of going into college to be um, a forensic psychiatrist. I wanted to work with people. I actually wanted to work in prisons for some time. I, I, I think it was probably just a phase, but it's still something that sits in the back of my mind. And there was always something about Dr. Loomis and Halloween and his obsession and realization that it cannot be done in Halloween registered with me a lot. Uh, Halloween 2018 says something about evil that I think is really important. It's really not just a slasher where, you know, Michael Myers breaks out of prison yet again and, you know, Laurie Strode has to fight him off. There's something going on beneath the surface that I think is really important. And much of the discussion has been about Laurie's trauma, sort of her status as a, a victim and somebody who's dealing with PTSD and such. But there hasn't been much discussion of the fact that she's right. Lori Strode is right. She is ready, waiting for Michael Myers. Her community thinks that she's crazy for, you know, having like her house be like a bunker and she's like stocking up on her guns and making sure she knows how to shoot. She's right about everything. And, you know, the town sort of derides her and mocks her, even her family. And in the end, you know, it all pans out just the way she said. And it's her readiness for the fight, which is what saves everybody. I, I've always known that Michael Myers, also known as the shape, also known as the boogeyman, was sort of supernatural and that he cannot be killed. And he's driven by a carnal need to kill. But I didn't think about it until recently as symbolism for evil itself. Like evil is silent. It can't be reasoned with. It won't explain itself to you in earnest. And I think in earnest is the key there. It's relentless and scary. And in Halloween, the characters who like have their minds set on understanding Michael Myers will inevitably get slaughtered in every movie that's ever been in the franchise and including this one. Their focus is misplaced. They want to talk to Myers. They want to feel something from him. Kind of like how we as Star Wars fans want to know about Vader and Kylo. We want to know what they're feeling and what their motivations are. Like, what is your motivation? But true, true evil, which is out there, cannot be understood and it will swallow you whole. That is a belief that I also have while I also believe it is important to be empathetic, uh, but only to a certain point. Halloween is actually pretty layered if you look close enough and it's kind of awesome. So my love of that franchise has only grown over time. That's my fodder. Uh, it, it, was a, it was a good movie. That's super fascinating. I've actually never seen Halloween and should reconsider that. Reconsider are you, are, you in, are you into horror at all? I've only watched the recent It movie, which I've realized isn't actually that scary. So I yeah. don't know if yeah. I am into horror. <laughs> yeah, they, so it, it was a horror movie in so much that it was horrific for the characters, but I don't really think it was meant to be a horrific movie for audiences. Right. Um, and, and really get under your skin. It, it kind of was like Stranger Things in the sense that Stranger Things has horrific elements. It, it's really just more about the journey of the kids. I, I think that it's probably not a legit horror movie, at least the, the more recent version. Right, I'd agree. Yeah, yeah. Wow. 
That brings us to the end of another episode of Beltway Banthas. Uh, next week, we will be live streaming Suara watching the new Halloween movie and doing a <laughs> podcast about it. <laughs> that is not true. We'll be back with another episode. Uh, episode 64, like I said, is going to be the focus on the real people in the Star Wars universe kind of getting steamrolled by the two factions. And then in between that, we're going to have panel audio from the Library of Congress in which Suara was a guest alongside Seth Maskett, a political scientist and past guest of this show, to talk to an audience about the politics of Star Wars. And it was an incredible honor. And you're going to get that audio in your feed so that you can listen to it uh, yourself. So we'll be back next week with more. And until then, May the force be with you. Always.